Good morning. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-three. Second Chronicles thirty-three. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for the opportunity to come together in a public place and without fear to worship and to learn about uh, your word. We thank you for giving us your word. I ask that today our hearts and minds would be attentive, we would be listening, and that I would say the things that you want me to say uh, and not interject any of my own ideas. And if anything I say is wrong, uh, please help us not to hear that, just to, to pass over that and forget that. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So 2 Chronicles 33. I want to begin by reading verse 1, uh, and then we'll get a little bit of surrounding context of the, the situation that we're looking at. 2 Chronicles 33, verse 1. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. So as I like to do, uh, or recently have enjoyed doing, is to sort of give myself a little bit of uh, context so that I can start to see where these stories fit in the framework of the Bible, right? Because the Bible is one big, beautiful, intricate story. And a lot of times in the past, I have found myself not realizing the connections and where things fit together. So I see three things in here that can be uh, examined. Uh, Manasseh is in Jerusalem. Who is Manasseh? When is this taking place? And where is this taking place? So very quickly, uh, I like to, to sort of orient things around David. I find David is a good central point that we can uh, look at the kings of Israel, right? So David uh, has succeeded by Solomon. The kingdom divides into two different kingdoms. And we're looking at the kingdom of Judah. Eleven kings through Judah. We have Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, who's remembered as a good king, and who we're looking at today, Manasseh. We'll see a brief mention of Ammon and Josiah at the end of the chapter. Historically, this is roughly 300 years after David was reigning as king. So we're about 700 years before Christ. Jerusalem, many of us are familiar with where Jerusalem is on the map here, but it's just west of the Dead Sea at the bottom. We'll add a few more locations to this map as we go on. But let's begin by reading verses 2 through 10. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, 
I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh, or Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. So a little summary here, if we didn't catch them all, of some of Manasseh's wrongdoings. He did evil, abominations. He rebuilt the high places, these false, uh, these, these places of worship to false, uh, false gods. He raised up altars for Baals. He made wooden images. He worshipped and served the host of heaven. Uh, not only that, but he built altars to the host of heaven in the house of the Lord. He burned his sons as an offering. Now, what it says here is that he caused his sons to pass through fire. So if we want to give him the benefit of the doubt, he could have just they might have gotten a little singed. Right. But at the very least, it was a very pagan uh, practice. We see some uh, that he has a son that is alive at the end here. So they didn't all get burnt to death, at least. But uh, that doesn't really give him much credit. Uh, he practiced soothsaying or fortune telling. He used witchcraft and sorcery, He consulted mediums and spiritists. He provoked the Lord to anger. He put an idol in the house of God and he seduced uh, the nation and his people to evil. And as we see in verse 10, he wouldn't listen to the Lord. It says that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. That's going to be a key point that we want to look at. Not necessarily all of these other things that he had done, but that the Lord had reached out to him and that he would not listen. But I want to go back and look at two of these verses a little more closely, just to sort of get an idea of, of the extent of Manasseh's sin and what it was he was actually doing. In verse 4, it said that he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. That seems like a very dangerous thing to do. If God says that his name is going to be somewhere, and then you're trying to replace that, right? You're building false false idols and false worship in a, in, a, in a place where God said, my name is always going to be there. It seems a very dangerous and blind uh, testing of God's promise. As though God would allow such a thing to happen. So Manasseh is very ignorantly or defiantly doing these things in the face of God. And then in verse five, it says that he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So this would be worship of stars and planets and looking up to the sky and, and believing that uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, Mars, all these different uh, planets and stars and alignments control or, or dictate or indicate things in our life. Is there anything like this happening today in our more refined society? My goodness, right? Horoscopes is the is the the heart of this this astrological um, concept. Where, where initially, when I read this, or whenever I think of of the worship of the stars, it seems like such an ancient, foolish, blind, pagan thing. But it's amazing how many people today live by what their horoscope says or, or, or try and consult the stars and, and live their life according to what 
the, the alignment of the stars. People ask you, you know, I, I've been in conversations with people and mentioned a character trait about myself. And they say, oh, what's your sign? Are you a whatever? And I want to just, it just drives me insane because it, it has to, to, to deify, right? To, to lift these, these stars and these signs up to the place of God is, is not a fun, cute, interesting thing to do. It is, a, it is a gateway and it is an invitation to demonic forces to begin to, to oppress and cloud the mind of those who, who, who would dabble in such things. And so, in a sense, Manasseh establishes a, a horoscope of sorts in the temple of God. And we saw mention here that he caused his sons to pass through the valley of Hinnom, which is just outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was a wicked place where all of these forbidden practices could occur. Soothsaying, witchcraft, sorcery. These uh, idols like Moloch where, where, where the children would be placed into fire. Later, one of the next kings, Josiah, would defile this place. He would go out and he would put garbage and corpses and bones, and he would make it a, a defiled, unusable place. So it became a, a burning, foul trash dump outside of Jerusalem that we would better know as Gehenna. Picking up at verse 11 through 13. So that after we read this, this list and we see all the sins of Manasseh, and we hear that he refused to listen to the Lord... What happens in verse 11? Therefore, the Lord brought upon him the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So Manasseh is captured with fetters, which are, are shackles and chains and hooks. And, and the word here indicates a, a hook through the lip or through the nose, right? Being led like an animal. So why? Why was Manasseh captured with fetters and hooks? What caused that to happen? At first, you might think all of his sins, all these terrible things he had done. Well, that was a part of it. But verse 11 begins with therefore. So we want to look right preceding that and see what it says. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria. We'll look at this concept in more detail later, but it's not so much what he had done, but it was his response to God's to God's word and to God's call that caused this to happen. It's the fact that he wouldn't listen to God that caused all these terrible things to come upon him. And in that situation, in that great bondage, he does humble himself. He comes to the Lord. 
And we see this a lot in Scripture. Uh, opportunities to listen to the Lord before he has to get louder, right? I've always liked to say we want to we obey the still small voice before he comes to us in a whirlwind, right? Because he'll, he'll escalate. He'll, keep, he'll give you what you need. So if you're going to be stubborn, he'll, he'll break you down. And so that's what he does with Manasseh here. He, he, he brings him in bondage into Babylon. Babylon doesn't fit on my map. It's about a thousand miles east of Jerusalem. And we'll see why that's important in a minute. What, what, what Manasseh does when he's restored in verse 14. It says, after this, he built a wall outside of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel and he raised it up to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So first, in verse 14, he builds a wall outside of the city of David on the west side of the Gihon. So remember, Babylon out here to the east or out here to the east. And he builds this wall uh, right near the city, uh, just west of the valley. So he comes back and says, that was unpleasant. I'm going to fortify the city. So he builds this wall and, and places military command there to prevent um, any Assyrian follow up or to do his best to prevent Assyrian follow up. And he, he takes steps to re- restore true worship, right? He, he removes these uh, idols and the altars, and, and he casts them outside of the city. There's nothing specified here, though, that he destroyed anything, right? It just says he put them out. He removed them. And we'll look at that in just a moment. The consequences of, of not destroying uh, these false worships and these these pagan idols. Well, how do the people respond? He 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 sets up this uh, the the true altar and, and offers peace and thank offerings, and he commands the people to serve the Lord. But the people never truly came back to God. They they offered they, they worshipped God, but not in the right place, which is what God had commanded. It was a half-hearted. It wasn't true worship like the Lord had commanded. The Lord gave very specific instructions as to where and how he would be worshipped. But the people continued to go to these false places to worship the Lord. Manasseh, in verse 9, it says that he seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then here, he commands them. It's sad, and we can still see that today, that seduction is often much more powerful than orders, right? Even naturally. The idea of seduction is this subtle persuasion, and maybe over time, and commandments or laws are the things we're naturally inclined to resist. 
So he was unable to completely sway the people he had seduced. In verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sins and trespass and the sites where he built the high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosei. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. So uh, verse 18, the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, written in the book of the kings of Israel, refers in part to a portion of scripture in 2 Kings 21. We're not going to turn there. We won't take the time to read that right now. Um, but one, interest, one interesting thing we do see about Manasseh's evil is that it said he, 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 caused, he did so much uh, wrong that he filled Jerusalem with blood. We do see a little, uh, some of what the, the prophets had said to him in that in that passage, uh, but his prayer is lost. It's actually uh, or a so-called prayer of Manasseh is included in the apocryphal books or what some would call the, the Deuterocanon. Uh, but it's not uh, it is not accepted as part of our scripture. So we have lost the the prayer that he has prayed. It's also unfortunate uh, that we don't have the details of his Bab- Babylonian captivity. We, we don't see how they came to take him besides knowing that it was with fetters and hooks. And, and we don't see how he escaped. Right. What a what a big, wonderful mystery is there in in verse 13 that. The Lord received his entreaty and heard his supplications and brought him back to Jerusalem. That sounds like it was quite a story, but we don't know what happened. We don't know if there was some daring escape, if there was some uh, miraculous uh, situation. But all we know is that he was returned to Jerusalem. That story is lost, just like this prayer that is referenced here in verse 18. And just briefly to to satisfy any curiosity because I was very curious about what the book of Hosei was. Well, there's a lot of discussion on that. Suffice it to say that it is a prophet. Some say that Hosei was a prophet himself and that it's uh, his name is Hosei and we don't have that book. Some people assign that name to uh, a mistranslation of prophets that we do have and some people simply translate it to, to mean seers or prophets. So all we need to to understand from that reference is that it was uh, prophets from the Lord, like we read about in verse 10, that uh, that the Lord spoke to Manasseh. Right. These these people were speaking to him on the Lord. The Lord was not just hoping that Manasseh would come to his senses. He was speaking to him, beckoning him and calling him through the prophets. Who takes Manasseh's place? Ammon. He was 22 years old in verse in verse 21. He was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more 
Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now, remember, Manasseh, we didn't see that he destroyed any of these false things. When he came back from Babylon, we saw that he, he, he took them down and he cast them out. He removed them. He put them aside. He put them in the bottom drawer, right? Even though the law, Deuteronomy 7, 5, said that this is how you deal with these things. You destroy the altars. You break down the sacred pillars. You cut down the wooden images and you burn the carved images with fire. But he didn't. He simply... He took them down and removed them. And what happens then? His son takes them, puts them back up, worships them and and sins like Manasseh did, but more and more. Now, it may seem at first that that Ammon doesn't have quite as a fair shot as Manasseh did to repent. Right. We see that Manasseh has 55 years reigning as king. God sends prophets to him and he rejects them. God then takes him into captivity and he finally comes to his senses there in captivity. But Ammon, two years in, going down the same path as his father and he, he's, he's killed. But Ammon, Ammon was, was probably in his teenage years around the time that his father was uh, stubbornly not listening to these prophets and, and that he was taken into Babylon. So Ammon got to see all of this firsthand. That's the best way to learn things, to see them happen to other people, right? Not go through them yourself. So Ammon gets to see his father ignore the prophets, go through this captivity, humble himself and obey the Lord. But he does not respond the same way. He continues to commit the same sins. So what can we take away from this story? What does this What illustrations are here for us to remember and live differently? Largely I think the idea of dabbling. Again, I think horoscopes are such a common one. Right? That's just the example we see here in the story. But so often people think something is harmless or fun, uh, or maybe they don't even think it's just harmless and fun. Maybe they think they can do a little bit of both, right? This is called syncretism. People think they can worship the Lord and another God, and they have this, this new false religion. But if you worship or, or, or pray or obey the stars or these any false god, it is impossible for you to also worship the true God, because that's not the true God you're worshiping. If you have any concept that you can worship the God of the Bible and a false God, you do not know who the God of the Bible is. You have thoroughly misunderstood him. So there is no dabbling in these things. There's no dabbling with with worship, with coming to the Lord. Right. The people sacrificed to the Lord, but they kept doing it in the high places. Right. We the, the, the Lord instructed that worship be done in the temple. Right. And now we are a temple. Right. Of the Holy Spirit. And 
we hear this all the time, but you know, what portion of our heart are we are we locking a little bit of our old life away in? What are we keeping part of our old self to where we're, maybe we're worshiping, but the we're not worshiping in the right way or in the right place because we're trying to hold on to something from the past, like like the people who were here with the high places. And then with putting things out. I, I've heard so many stories of and I've, I've lived them myself, and I imagine some of you can relate to to having things in your in your past that were causing you to sin or were just sin themselves. And maybe, like I said, putting them, they go in the bottom drawer, they go in a box or, or they get uh, put somewhere where you won't think about them. But how often do those things come back out? Do we then say, oh, it's, I know where it is and I'll, I'll do that. Or maybe as we see exactly here, someone else stumbles upon them in a very literal sense. If you have uh, something sinful and you hide it, someone could actually just find it. And this is what Ammon did. He went out and he got the things that his father didn't destroy. And then spiritually, we can we can consider that as well. What things are we uh, again coming to the Lord, but not completely coming to the Lord with. Something we want to keep in our life, a habit that we we want to maybe reduce or maybe do more privately, but something we're not ready to give up. Rather than to to destroy these things so that they they won't come back or influence other people. And the second thing is about humbling ourselves before the Lord. Remember, we see a big list of all the sinful things that Manasseh did, but his captivity came after he wouldn't listen to the Lord. And only in captivity did he humble himself before the Lord. And what do we see the sin of Ammon being in verse 23? He did all the evil things, but in verse 23, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Ammon had 53 Less years reigning as king. And I like this quote. This is not in the Bible. This is a, a, an extrapolation, a thought. Although we can see it true uh, among people today. It says, perhaps when he sinned, as his father did in the beginning of his days, he promised himself that he would repent as his father had done in the latter end of his days. But if so, he was wretchedly mistaken, being cut off when he was young. As his case shows, what madness it is to presume upon repenting and turning to God when we are old. You've ever, I'm sure you've heard uh, someone of the opinion that I'm still young. I'll come to God later. Right? I'll do it later. Uh, I never had that exact thought, but I do remember being younger and not understanding the word and not understanding uh, much of what people said in their prayers and just thinking, oh, that's something that comes in your 20s and 30s all. It'll happen to me naturally then, right? Rather than recognizing the risks and the dangers of that type of thinking and, 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 and seeking to rectify it as quickly as possible. Because Ammon thought, or, or perhaps Ammon thought, my, my dad had 55 years as king 
I'll deal with it later. And he only had two. So all of this boiled down is a reminder that we must humble ourselves. And it's encouraging. um, Not speaking from a place of experience yet, but from stories that I've heard that are still heart wrenching uh, about good parents. That doesn't exactly necessarily always translate to the uh, your children living the way we want. Right. And and maybe that's all Hezekiah got to see of Manasseh Um, because they they spent some time uh, together uh, before Hezekiah was killed or before Hezekiah died. And. It's encouraging to, to think that. The Lord continues to work on people, right? Uh, children or otherwise, whether it's your, your, your kids or anyone, just the people that we know that sometimes seem so far gone that whether we're still in the picture or not, that the Lord continues to work on those people because he cares about them even more than we do. And that he would be so gracious that, again, remember that list of all these things Manasseh did just seems so appalling and so unforgivable And yet the Lord continues to just chase him down and work on him and work on him and work on him until he finally breaks him down enough that he humbles himself. Such inhuman, unbelievable grace. So to humble ourselves quickly, not knowing when our time is to stand before the Lord and completely not holding back any any portion of our our old life uh, for ourselves. And I want to end with another quote. Again, circling back to verse 10. Man, uh, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. He had to go into captivity to humble himself. Ammon didn't humble himself. What ruins men is not so much sin as impenitence in sin. Not so much that they have offended as that they do not humble themselves and forsake their offenses. Not the disease, but the neglect of the remedy. All have sinned. Sin is not something that we try to avoid so that we don't have to face punishment or humble ourselves. Everyone starts on a level playing field. Everyone has sinned. What specifically will send people to an eternity apart from Christ is neglecting the remedy. The remedy that we couldn't afford. And that's why the Lord Jesus offered himself for us. His blood is that remedy. His blood is the reason we can humble ourselves because we can look to the one person who didn't deserve to humble himself, who humbled himself further than anyone could even imagine for our sake so that we can come humbly acknowledging the things that we've done wrong uh, responding to God's call right God spoke to us we have a lot more from God than uh, written from God than Manasseh had to respond and humble ourselves and we want to do that quickly before God Uh, escalates before he comes to us in the whirlwind, before we get uh, hooks and fetters.
and completely, not leaving some portion of, of sin in our life so that we or others around us might uh, see it and return to it and, and fall with it. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the Lord Jesus so that we have an ultimate standard of humility and a reason to humble ourselves. Uh, such a great, undeserved reward. Such grace that is so unfair that we we ought to experience the suffering and, and pain that we've begged for with our sin, but you offer us such free salvation. We thank you for that. Uh, help us to live differently because of that, that we would not only humble ourselves and continue down mediocrity, but that we would humble ourselves and destroy the things in our life that are uh, keeping a part of us or are causing us to turn, that we would destroy those things and seek after you wholly. Please be with us now as we conduct this meeting, that it would go smoothly and, and be to your glory and protect us on our, on our way home and until we meet again the next time. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.